All right, all right, all right. Hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to VUX World. I am uh, absolutely looking forward to today's conversation with Braden Ream, CEO of VoiceFlow. Braden, uh, Braden and VUX World, and Braden and I go back, way back, I think, to the beginning of, uh, feels like the beginning of time, but certainly the beginning of VUX World because our journeys began probably at a similar kind of time. Uh, but before we get into that conversation, two things to tell you about today. One, one is, uh, I don't know if you are subscribed to the Voice Summit newsletter, uh, the big summit, the big event that happens in the US every year annually. Uh, this year it's in Arlington, Virginia, uh, run by Modev, and there's going to be a whole bunch of people there. You've probably been to that conference before. If you haven't, it is all about voice AI technology and how it is applied in the enterprise. And this year, I am delighted to formally announce that VUX World is going to have its own mini conference within that main conference uh, that's going to be in October, uh, October the 11th. And uh, yeah, we're going to be running a conference for the whole day. And we're going to be talking specifically about how you can automate your call center using conversational AI. We're going to walk through the end-to-end journey of contact center automation using conversational AI. Our sessions, uh, our, our event is headline sponsored by Core AI. And over the next coming weeks and months, you will be seeing a hell of a lot more about this event. It's going to be one that you do not want to miss. Uh, the links to uh, find out the agenda and to get your tickets and all that kind of stuff, I will put in the show notes. Uh, and please do check that out. Before we uh, crack on, we've also got one more thing, which is uh, tomorrow, if you are available tomorrow, we are running in line with a lot of the topic that we're going to be discussing today, a CX maturity workshop alongside Cognigy. I'll be facilitating the workshop. So if you come along, you can bring yourself, you can bring your team. We're going to be walking through how to develop your customer experience maturity in order to deliver more effective, better, grander customer experiences for your customers. So go to vux.world forward slash Cognigy to uh, find out more about that. That is vux.world forward slash C-O-G. N-I-G-Y. Okay, let's do this. So without further ado, let's welcome a longtime friend of the show, uh, Mr. Braden Ream of VoiceFlow. Braden, now then. Hello, hello. Good to see you. Hey, nice to see you again, my friend. How's things? Things are good. Things are good. I'm actually in uh, in New York just visiting some customers this week. So uh, it's kind of nice, you know, and uh, I will never turn down an in-person meeting invite. So uh, for anyone watching... <laughs> Uh, if you're in a in a cool location, uh, let's go for coffee somewhere. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I, uh, I'm hoping we're going to get ourselves to uh, to New York ourselves in October when we do this event. Uh, maybe swinging by New York, you know what I mean? Spend a few days there, which would be quite nice. Never been in New York before. Beautiful. <clears throat> I mean, it, it, it's been it's been oh my gosh, like what two years since uh, we did this podcast last. Uh, yeah. You know, I think at that, at that time, you know, we were uh, mostly Alexa, Google. I think we were just starting to get into conversation design. So uh, it's a, a much needed up uh, uh, refresh video today. So uh, super definitely, definitely. And we've got quite a few people tuning in, actually, which which I suppose is nice because this is also happening at the same time as Alexa Live, which you pointed out in your email to me the other day. Uh, and so it's interesting because it seems to me, and I don't know what you think about this, but it seems to me that the attention has drifted from voice assistant platforms and moved more into the higher level NLU, NLP category, voice assistants being part of it, but obviously there's a lot of traction in the IVR space, which is what we spend a lot of time doing on the chat space, you know, messaging, all these different channels and environments that can utilize this technology. It all just seems to be blowing up at the minute. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I think we're, uh, as an industry, we've defined what, uh, we want to build towards now, which is every company sort of having its own, uh, its own assistant. Uh, you know, I think Brett Kinsella did a really good job, uh, sort of highlighting this, you know, almost two years ago now. Uh, but you know, we had a walled garden approach with a lot of the voice assistants. So, you know, think of like the Alexas, the Googles, uh, as, uh, you know, almost like a Netscape, right? Like it was a browser of which you could browse, uh, domains that had to be built within its walled garden. Uh, but now we're moving to an approach where, uh, companies want to actually own the tech stack. They want to own the data. They want to own the customer relationship. Um, and, in you know, in that they want to actually build their own assistant that can work across all channels. And so, um, it's a pretty exciting future. Like, you know, we talk about this internally as, you know, we're trying to help enable, you know, the world of a billion assistants, right. Where, uh, every brand will have its own assistant. You know, eventually, I think we get into personal assistants that can intermediate and you know do larger, uh, more complex, uh, complex tasks by actually working with the. I think we've lost him. Starting to uh, uh, see sort of propagate across the industry. Hi, back. Sorry, sorry, I lost, I lost the last little, last little bit of that there. I think the internet uh, dropped slightly, but uh, I think I got the gist of what you were saying, which is that the vision of the future is this world where there is a billion assistants and every company has their own assistant, which we're kind of getting towards, uh, and VoiceFlow being there as an enabler of that, right? Yeah, that's that's the goal, and you know, we we we've got our own positioning on. Um, how we think uh, companies get there. And of course, you know, other, other companies may have different opinions, but uh, for the most part, we think it's going to be uh, fairly tech flexible. There, you know, it's not going to be sort of a one size fits all tech stack, uh, you know, different techs for different ch channels, for different use cases, different companies, different regions, whatever it might be. Uh, so being and then design led and then ultimately collaborative as well, you know, it takes so a team of copywriters, conversation data scientists, you know, uh, product owners, uh, all working together to create great conversational assistance um, and then leading with sort of a, a customer centric or like a design led approach uh, and doing this all in a tech flex uh, a way that's tech flexible. So that's kind of our, you know, viewpoint of the world in terms of where mm -hmm. the macro is going. And then on the tactical side, that's how we see, you know, voice flow approaching that, uh, uh, that world. Mm. So, so how has how has things changed for you then? So when last time we spoke uh, in 2019, I think it was, or might have been, might, must have been 2019, maybe it was 2020. But we were talking about the discoverability uh, problem. If you remember that, for those people who uh, we had a lot of conversations in 2019 about discoverability on Alexa, and. Um, at the time, VoiceFlow was you were still doing some stuff. I think around you know trying to integrate things like designing chatbots and stuff, but you were predominantly a platform where you could design, build, and publish Alexa skills and Google Assistant actions. Um, what's kind of changed for, for VoiceFlow in that kind of transition? So it sounds as though it's now more conversational AI, generally speaking. Are you still seeing demand from those original platforms? Or like, I'm wondering if you can talk us through how you've seen the market evolve as far as demand for these different channels has progressed. Yeah, I, you know, I wouldn't say demand has, has gone down for, uh, I, I think for Google. Google more recently, you know, following their deprecation news, I, I think we've certainly seen demand kind of fall off there. But um, for Alexa, we've continued to see, uh, continue to see it. I think what's changed, though, is um, demand for uh, assistance across chatbots, uh, you know, bringing in NLU's traditional call center stacks, which might actually not have had an NLU before, you know, there's sort of more legacy on-prem technologies. As they move to the cloud, they're, you know, uh, interesting more of an assistant architecture. Um, I think it's just demand for those has skyrocketed. So relative 
you know, relatively speaking, um, it's not that uh, demand for Alexa has shrunk. It's just demand for chatbots and, you know, uh, assistance in general has just, you know, uh, skyrocketed. So um, that's been the majority of our business over the past two years now really is um, trying to become, you know, like uh, it, it the the company we essentially want to build is almost like the Adobe suite for uh, for uh, conversational AI teams, right? So having um, different products that uh, enable different uh, elements of the workflow, but together can be sort of, you know, one conjoined unified workflow, right? All the way from design, prototyping, you know, managing of content, managing NLU, all these kinds of things, um, either offering integrations, working with partners, um, you know, having as many open APIs as we can so people can build, uh, uh, build their own custom workflows with whatever tool stack they want to use. Because uh, I think, you know, uh, the, the only certainty of, of sort of where this industry is going is that things are going to ch- continue to change rapidly. That's like really the only certainty we have. Right. And so uh, we're just trying to make sure that we build uh, our tooling in such a way where people uh, have the flexibility. So as they want to plug and play different texts, again, that's like probably the cornerstone of how we're, we're building, uh, building our platform is we want it to be open to work with any, you know, any text to speech, any NLU platform, any underlying dialogue manager, like, you know, the only thing we're trying to do really, really well is enable that collaborative design led workflow. And then the underlying technology can be whatever you want. Um, And so, you know, a bit of, bit of a tangential answer to, to the initial question, but I think um, it points to, uh, we certainly have predictions on where the space is going to go. You know, I think, you know, uh, you're going to start to see the conjoining of uh, sort of, you know, uni- unified contact centers between uh, uh, the call center and chatbots. I think you'll see more unification of dialogue managers and things like that. Um, but that's all just a prediction. I think the only certainty is that things are going to change a lot. Uh, and so we're just trying to make sure we're, we're open enough to handle that change. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I've seen a couple of those. <clears throat> I've seen a lot of siloed implementations. Uh, Richard's got a question kind of alluding to this, which I'll get to in a moment, Richard. Um, I've seen a lot of siloed implementations where one thing is done by one team and other things done by another team and all that kind of stuff. The challenge, I suppose, with chat and voice together in one brain is that inevitably the channel itself has slightly different usability, either constraints or differences. For example, chat, you might fall back on buttons, whereas voice, you can't do that kind of thing. So I can definitely see them being uh, some complications uh, architecturally. However, I definitely agree that more companies are moving towards that kind of like build once, deploy everywhere approach, which is what we were talking about in 2018 as the the dream kind of situation, which is that you build this thing once, you build your brain, and in the same way as Uber doesn't care whether you're ordering an Uber on your watch or the app or the website or whatever, the central hub is the same, and so the same approach is taken to the assistant. It just seems as though it's taken a long time for enterprises to get to that stage inevitably because they move, you know, relatively slowly, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, to to the enterprises watching it, it's funny as as Voiceful has grown about five times over the past, you know, call it like year and a half, um, and as as we get larger. Um, I'm constantly like, why, you know, why do things take so long? Right. You know, we used to ship features in a week. Now it's, you know, three weeks, right. Or it's a month. Uh, and I, I can only imagine as you start to get the larger and larger scale, you know, suddenly a quarter feels really fast. Right. So, mm. um, you know, that's, uh, part, part of the fun of, of having, uh, customers is you can't have downtime. You have to QA thing, you know, you have to add additional process o- over time to ensure you're, uh, maintaining quality, but then also tr- you know, trying to speed up. Um, anyways, that's a bit of a tangent. I think, um, you know, really what it comes down to is unified context. It's actually, you know, I think, so we started at voice thought thinking, um, build once deploy everywhere was the right approach. And then what we realized was that, you know, if you, you know, the goal, you know, not from the goal shouldn't be 
determined by technology. The goal should be determined by user, uh, user experience, right? And so the ideal user experience is going to uh, be one which has unified context, but the ability to handle uh, all the native capabilities of whatever your channel you're interacting with that assistant through, right? So I do think it's going to be um, not, the difference is it's not siloed team. So th there's kind of a funny little transformation that we see, and this comes to like the maturity matrix that we, um, we've been talking about a lot recently. So uh, for a little bit of context for the group and uh, for everyone watching, um, I'll walk through this maturity matrix um, and how we actually sort of see uh, see maturity play out. Um, but the context on how this came about was we've got about 90,000 plus teams using, you know, VoiceFlow now. Um, and, you know, you might have like a Fortune 100 company, which is far less mature than like a startup that's like, you know, 25 people. And what we've realized is it comes down to, um, you know, your workflow, your technology, um, and then also uh, sort of like your um, uh, how, how your talent is actually um, resourced as well. So um, here's what I mean. Uh, a level zero is going to be like somebody who's not in uh, conversational AI, right? Now, when they go into level one, often they're going to, uh, this is when they're just adopting conversational AI. It's very common to adopt it in a siloed way, right? So a business line is going to uh, adopt conversational AI as um, uh, for, for a very particular um, reason, right? And so they might not even consult with other business lines because they're just, you know, watching their own PL, they're just doing their own thing, right? And so this will happen simultaneously across a few different business lines. And so you might see that happen where the contact center adopted it first, right? They adopted, you know, like a, an, an, an IVR with some automation. Uh, and then you're going to have maybe uh, your support team, you know, adopted a web chat solution. Next thing you know, you've got like three different conversational AI tech stacks, but they're all siloed, right? So that's um, pretty common, to be honest, to have that sort of vendor approach uh, where you have three different vendors. Then what you see is uh, companies go, hold up, you know, we want to have unified context. We want to have a uh, unified um, team that's building these. So in the same way that we view web and mobile as core channels, we knew, now view our assistant as a core channel, right? And here's a great um, uh, a way to think about this. When you watch any sort of sci-fi, and, you know, sci-fi is often uh, sort of, uh, the beacon of what, you know, the technology industry wants to work towards, right? It's sort of, you know, hum humanities, you know, different fantasies on what the future could look like is, is portrayed in these sci-fi movies, um, you know, flying cars, you know, you know, even the internet, you know, things like that. Um, in sci-fi, you don't really see people using phones or uh, websites. You see people using personal assistants, right? Mm -hmm. um, and when you actually look at, like, for example, the ultra, wealth, the ultra wealthy today, how they interact with uh, brands, like you don't have someone like, you know, uh, booking their own trip, they actually have personal assistants. That's how the ultra wealthy get a lot of their stuff done today. And so it's the democratization of this personal assistant technology, you know, sort of for everyone. So a lot of brands have now realized that, right? And as they want to build their own uh, assistant that's able to offer this personal, uh, you know, uh, uh, contextual help at scale, um, that's where they need to uh, start to unify. And so um, this is where you kind of come up with the decision of, are we going to build ones to deploy everywhere? And I think that's often like the simplest, like sort of idea it doesn't create the best user experience. And so instead, uh, you'll see people uh, basically start to build in-house uh, talent. So that's your conversation designers. You know, often they work with consultancies just to get started, but then they bring in-house. Um, they start to build a consolidated uh, workflow. So you want to have standards of workflow across your different teams. Then you want to have the unique power of each of these uh, channels, right? So you want to be using the native functionality for each channel. So, um, and then, you know, having a unified... Uh, uh, dialogue manager, or sometimes it can be dialogue managers that talk to each other, whatever way you want to actually connect it. The ideal is that it's unified context, native capabilities across every channel uh, with a centralized 
talent base and centralized uh, sort of tech stack. Um, but it's okay if it's, you know, siloed per channel if it, if, when it comes to the native functionality, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. it's just like, you know, starting siloed, then merging, then going back out. Um, but, you know, just make, make, making the having that unified context. And sorry, that was a, a very long rant, but that's basically the maturity <laughs> model that we see. Um, uh, you know, I could go into further detail uh, on sort of each of mm-hmm. those different elements, but you know, I'm sure, I'm sure we've got some presentations online or I'm, I'm sure our marketing team's got something on the site uh, at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we'll dig it out and we'll stick it in the show notes. But it's, it's interesting because they, they do tend to follow the same kind of sort of steps, I suppose. You know, like, so for for there's Nelson Norman one, which Richard uh, commented on, uh, which I was looking at, which is which is similar in, ten, in a sense, but it's <clears throat> it's all about UX maturity, which the stages are absent limited, emergent, structured, integrated, user-driven. They mm-hmm. This model seems to be getting to the place where you suggested the centralized center of excellence kind of approach happens a little bit later on. I would probably argue that in, with conversational AI, it, it, it does happen quite, I would say not necessarily soon, soon, but within the first few years of doing something, you'll notice a center of excellence kind of appear, you know. But then oh, what's... Yeah. Yeah, then what's what's kind of like not occurring as much now, but is beginning to certainly from the kind of like technology uh, that enterprises are looking for is that hub and spoke kind of model. So those that have had a team for a while, they've been doing fairly well. They might have multiple different deployments in different channels, whether that's sharing technology or using different technology uh, is besides the point. But then they get to a point where actually that one single team can't possibly manage every single conversation that happens as you begin to scale. And so then they devolve it down to business units where they'll have like a, you know, a a subject matter expert who's trained in the technology, trained in conversation design and and start to kind of do it that way. Our our kind of model is very similar and we call that the, the relay phase, which is where you're passing the baton on and you're devolving it down, but you still have to maintain the quality control and you still need to maintain the standards it's just that you relieve a little bit of the pressure by devolving down to to business units, you know. Yeah, I mean, because you know, it, like you know, context is is uh, every conversation is designer's favorite word. Uh, because context matters so much, it makes sense that you know when we talk about like these unified assistants, it's likely not going to be one assistant per se, right? Uh, it's probably going to be uh, several different assistants that are each handling uh, particular domains. Uh, you know, that are going to be then uh, modeled by these subject matter experts. And um, I think some companies might have a, um, d- depending on their business, um, they might have a single assistant. They might have two assistants that are managed by one team, or they might have like more of a federated model, right? Which is, you know, I, I think what you're kind of describing there where, um, you know, you're, you're going to have uh, each of these sort of independent uh, assistants. And then you're going to have like, you know, a central, maybe a subject matter, you know, people who are setting the standards or creating the components or creating the persona guides, whatever it might be. And that's going to be pushed down to, uh, to sort of these sort of independent uh, subject matter ex, uh, 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 SME uh, led uh, uh, assistant. So yeah, we'll, we'll see how that develops. But I think the cool thing to see is um, conversation design is now starting to get a say in the workflow. Uh, and so this was not the case um, for a lot of companies, you know, even just like two years ago, Conversation design was much, much smaller. Uh, in fact, most people didn't even call it conversation design. It was going to be VUI design, chatbot design. There are a whole bunch, you know, uh, you know, VOX design. You know, there's a whole, you know, we're voice flow. You were, you know, we, we were all banking on, on, uh, on you know, one particular uh, sort of title set moving forward. Um, but it's really cool to see how 
Um, we've all consolidated on conversation design as sort of being, you know, this UX side of, of conversational interfaces and assistance. Uh, and now you're even seeing that, that break down further and specialize into, you know, AI trainers, right? People who are, um, sometimes they have a data science background, but not always, actually. There's some, some tools emerging that um, help you uh, essentially do like NLU design, as we call it, uh, internally. Because, you know, in the same way you have to design your assistant, you actually have to design it, or the same way you design your dialogue manager, you have to design your NLU to actually work, you know, hand in hand with it, right? So people who are specifically just working on the NLU models, uh, some people are specifically just working on the copy. Um, you know, some developers now only working on conversational assistants. And so it's been really cool to see conversation design as a title now get even more specialized in the same way that, you know, you would have saw, uh, you know, a designer, you know, uh, uh, sort of become a consolidated title and then fragment out into maybe, you know, iOS into product design, UI design. You're now seeing that in the conversational interfaces space as well. Mm, very interesting. Yeah. And you're also seeing that with technology components as well, you know, specific tools for analyzing NLU capabilities, specific tools for, for all of this kind of stuff, specific tools for dialogue management and stuff, um, which is really interesting. <clears throat> one, of the, one of the questions that, that Richard had originally, which we've kind of touched on it a lot, actually, and I think we've, had, we've covered most of it, but the, the latter part we didn't, which is uh, the challenges and benefits of each of those approaches. So if you walk through that model, you've got siloed teams, doing their own thing, probably with their own technologies, different technologies. You've got centralized center of excellence beginning to consolidate capabilities where they can. They still might not necessarily have a one platform, so to speak, but at least they're, they're moving in that kind of composable, reusable direction. And then you've got that maybe federated model as you begin to scale further, where you've got a lot more channels, a lot more conversations, a lot more components, and you begin to devolve some of that kind of, um, some of that ownership. What, are the challenges and or benefits of each of those stages. Maybe we'll start with the challenges. The challenges of moving from that siloed approach where everyone's doing their own thing, they've all got their own little babies, which they've been looking after for two years, and then we're moving to this kind of center of excellence kind of approach. It's a big shakeup for the for the teams, cultural change for the company, because now there's a new division that's responsible for a new technology type. Like, what are the, in your experience, what have you seen be the challenges in moving to that kind of center of excellence model? Yeah, I mean, it, there's uh, there's challenges across the board, um, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out like what's the best way to even tackle the challenges. So, for example, from Voiceflow side, we often see it's it's just as simple as moving data around uh, because the data is in all these different places, right? Uh, and so, for example, if you want to move. Like, let's say you have three different siloed teams, right? And they want to consolidate. Okay, well, team one's been using Miro and spreadsheets. Team two has been using, like, some vertical vendor and, uh, I don't know, Excel, right? Like, and you start to see, hold up, we either have to rebuild everything or we have to create a whole bunch of, like, you know, converters uh, to do this. And so... Um, it's a really heavy lift, right? Um, and like the, we, the way we think about it is like conversation design is ultimately conversation documentation um, and like creating a single source of, of documentation uh, that's in a, in a unified format is very uncommon. Uh, it's, it's usually pretty fragmented and that's, that's true across the NLU. It's true across the dialogue manager, which is essentially conversation design is, is dialogue manager design, um, et cetera. So I think that's, that's one of the biggest hurdles to be honest uh, to initially doing that central model is just the friction involved in actually migrating everything into, into some sort of unified format where all the teams can now actually, you know, collaborate. Right. Um, another is going to be just setting up patterns uh, that uh, you know, like, 
what is good conversation design? Um, this is something that the industry hasn't even like really determined, right? So for the most part, we determine like good conversation design is kind of, uh, you know, I'll, I know it when I see it and what's your work experience, right? And it's also mm-hmm. um, a large part of conversation design today, honestly, because of all the friction involved with moving data around, um, just know, like part of being a good conversation designer is knowing how to work within the workflows of your particular organization, right? So a good conversation designer at company X um, is going to lose like half their knowledge when they move to company Y because half their knowledge is like the processes and workflow and tooling set of company X, right? Um, And so uh, I think over time as you start to see um, less friction between uh, data, uh, hopefully like, you know, when conversation designers can go from X to Y and suddenly, you know, uh, everyone's able to collaborate at the industry level. We'll start to see standards emerge. Um, so I'd say that's a, that's a pretty big one. And then lastly is the most obvious is like the technology stacks are, are often completely different, right? So like moving from like a vertical vendor, which is going to be like kind of the one size fits all folks where it's going to be like, you know, here's your NLU. Here's like a lightweight GUI tool. Here's, you know, a little bit of NLU management. Here's a chat widget and like off you go to, okay, now we're going to have like our own NLU. So we're going to go do like an RFP for uh, a separate NLU vendor. Okay. We want to do our collaboration layer. Right. So we're going to go like, look at all the collaboration tools and we're going to, you know what I mean? Like we're going to custom mm-hmm. build a dialogue manager or use a, you know, a, a product for a dialogue manager as well. Moving from that, like one vendor who you kind of have a good relationship with, they probably give you some professional services and switching over to having like five different vendors at each layer of the stack um, is also pretty daunting as well. So um, yeah, there's, there's uh, quite a few challenges uh, in, in that stage. And I think it's why, you know, things are taking, you know, several years, companies are doing it, right. That's where you're seeing these conversation design teams emerge and sort of these in-house teams emerge. Uh, but it's, it's certainly taking, uh, you know, it takes, takes a while to do these big, cha- uh, big changes. Mm, definitely because you're also fitting in with the culture of the company as you mentioned you know like the company's approach to procuring new technologies it's like do they have that kind of like modular composable philosophy where everything is kind of like component bits of cloud infrastructure that are stitched together or do they typically go for an out-of-the-box kind of vertical solution as you phrased it which is we just need a platform bring a platform in and we'll, we'll deal with that kind of thing um it kind of depends on the company as well doesn't it but how how do you describe VoiceFlow today then? Because as I mentioned originally, the the kind of initial starting point for VoiceFlow was Alexa skills, Google Actions, design and publish. And then now, you know, moving more into the kind of enterprise conversational AI space, you know, you've made a, a lot of updates to the tool. NLU built in there now, really good collaboration features. The canvas has always been really smooth. So... How would you describe the tool now? Is it that single source of truth for conversation design? Or is it a platform like, for example, IBM Watson or Dialogflow, where you would expect not just design to happen in there, but also development and eventually publishing? Yeah, I think, um, you know, to, to give to give the short answer, we're just focused on really design and, and prototyping being, uh, and like ultimately we want to be sort of like the best conversation design and documentation tool, right? And so when you think about your dialogue manager, when you think about like, like where does the single source of truth for your assistant live, your assistant design, we want that to be, to be voice flow. Um, and then the goal is to be able to um, export into or integrate into uh, any of the underlying platforms. And I think, you know, the reason... We, we view it that way as it's really hard to do every single layer of the stack well, 
um, it, you know, it would be a ton of technology and ultimately um, you split your focus between too many different customer profiles uh, to go really, really deep. And so um, we have focused so much on the collaboration and the documentation layer. Uh, that's really sort of, you know, why, you know, over 90,000 teams have now sort of adopted VoiceFlow. Um, you know, quite a few of the Fortune 100 and 500, uh, you know, I'm sure lots of folks that, that people know in the industry, you know, are, are now designing with VoiceFlow, which is great. Um, and we know we think it's such a big challenge. And as we think about the world of a billion assistants, um, that market of conversation design and documentation is going to continue to grow uh, at a pretty rapid pace. And so we think there's a big opportunity uh, for us there. And ultimately, I also think if you do what's best for customers, you know, we know this from our own, you know, we're a software company, too. And so when we're building uh, we have to make big decisions about vendor lock-in, right? And so do we want to lock ourselves into having a single technology that does everything? Because what happens, for example, if we have, you know, we adopt, you know, company A, and then company B launches a way better NLU for a particular market, right? Well, now we actually have a suboptimal user experience because we're locked into vendor A, which has their NLU that's maybe an 8 out of 10, but, you know, there's another vendor that has a 10 out of 10 NLU, right? And so, we view it as um, it is more effort, but if you care about the end user experience and ultimately sort of the ROI that that drives, um, having the best in class tooling and being able to mix and match technologies at every layer of the stack is going to be what produces sort of the best user experience. And so we view it as let's just do the absolute best job we can at that design documentation uh, and sort of collaboration layer. And then we'll work with all the other uh, technology vendors and really just try to do what's best for customers there, you know, by becoming a single source of truth for the, uh, the dialogue manager. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. And so one of the things that the less mature teams would do is they would just build into a platform, Watson, Dialogflow, you name it, build straight into there. And, you know, the dialogue manager in certain instances, you know, like if you're using like Lex or whatever, it would be Lambda functions written in code, you know, or, or perhaps if you're using Dialogflow CX or another kind of platform, you've got some visual representation of what's going on. But a lot of the detail is is hidden away kind of thing. It's, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, abstracted is the wrong word because the whole tool is an abstraction, but, you know, it's, it's not clearly visible, so to speak. So, but yeah. you've still got the tools that you can just go in there and build with. And so that's what a lot of companies do when they begin is they go straight into a tool, they start building, they start, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then as you start to mature, you will realize that you need to understand what this thing is doing. Because once you have something that's working and it's live, it's like, well, how do you know what, how do you know how it's supposed to behave? How do you know when something yep. goes wrong? How do you know what the actual user experience is? How do you represent that to the team, especially when you want to try and extend it? You know, so, so then you'll notice that they start documenting stuff, which might be Visio, Excel, those kind of tools. And then they, as they start to develop, and, and often at that stage, the design documentation is done at the beginning. I don't know if you've also noticed that, which is it's a, the thing that's done at the beginning, then it's built. And then after that, the iterations that happen in the live system do not reflect the actual design. And so yeah. where I see VoiceFlow fit in, where, where we use it and have used it in the past is basically beyond that stage where you realize that you need a single source of truth for everything. And they, they need to have an abstracted version of what this thing is so that you can actually, one, do some actual usability testing properly on it and know how it's expected to happen and what's supposed to happen when. But two, make sure that you mentioned vendor lock-in. What happens if, you know, IBM Watson's not working for you anymore and you want to move it into something else or you've been using Nuance uh, Mix for a while and now you want to move it into some other thing for your IVR. And it's like, how do you go about rebuilding that? And so 
you know, they've got a number of different functions that having the ability to have the design in one place. However, the challenge I've always found is you end up having the representation of the, of the design still actually detached from the build of it. So I'm wondering yeah. if you could share any insights into how some of the mature teams keep on top of that synergy. Totally. Well, I, I think, you know, there's two ways to, to do this. One is going to be um, having a workflow where um, design is creating the requirements. Cause if you're iterating, you know, if, if you think about this um, from uh, uh, where are you iterating in the workflow, right? We argue you should be iterating at the design and the prototyping stage since it's much cheaper and faster to um, create prototype on VoiceFlow, share it out, do your user testing, gain insights, okay, modify the design versus the more, the more common workflow, unfortunately, is design it, ship it off to development, learn something in production, then iterate on it in production. And now this is what you're mentioning. And now your design's out of date, right? And so the goal would actually be to have uh, your production insights as well as your prototyping insights all reflect uh, to changes you should then make at the design layer, which then creates the requirements that are then shipped off the edge. And that way you have this big, you know, cohesive feedback loop, right? Because um, the second that those two models are um, almost like desynced, Right when you start to uh, you know uh, desync your production from your um, your actual design source of truth, now the problem with production is um, you are uh, uh, not able to iterate as quickly because of course writing code takes longer than designing in 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 like VoiceFlow for example right that's just inherently true um, and so when that's the case now you're iterating slower so you're learning uh, at at a slower pace and then further you're testing on production which is generally not advisable right. Um, you know, of course, if you have a really good A/B testing suite and things like that, sure. But I think the ideal is that all of your or a lot of your learning is being front-loaded, so you kind of get the obvious stuff out of the way. You know, like oh, this flow completely just didn't work in the first place. That's obvious from user testing, right? Like unstructured user testing. Um, and then you know, when we ship to production, it's minor optimizations, right? So we're doing the big 180 pivots on our design earlier in the in the workflow, so that by the time we go to production it's smaller pivots, right? And then that's all one uh, big cohesive loop. And so I think that would be the ideal. Um, but unfortunately, as you mentioned, it's it's often often not adhered to, and that's really a workflow problem. And there's things that we can do, you know, you know, we talk about CLIs, you know, how do we build, you know, good integrations with the dialogue manager so that we are, you know, uh, forcing that, th uh, uh, forcing that loop uh, through technology, not just enforcing workflow. But at the end of the day, you know, this same problem would be present in, uh, visual design as well, right? If your iOS designers uh, were to stop following your Figma document and were just to start building apps, you now, you know, have that desync problem as well. And so I think it just comes down to sort of discipline of workflow and viewing conversational assistance as a core channel to your business uh, in how you interact with customers in the same way that you do web and mobile. And when you start to view it as these are like three core digital channels, now you're going to start to adhere to that same sort of workflow across all three versus, you know, conversational AI, which is so developer led today. Um, mm. And you, you, you want to have developers um, who are really strong, really involved in the process. Um, but where a lot of the learnings for the dialogue manager are should be front loaded. That's, that's really the stance of being design led doesn't mean that design dictates everything. It more so means that the requirements are being understood at the design and the prototyping phase and, you know, user research and earlier on versus learning and trying to iterate with code, which is expensive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a sign, I think, actually, of the immaturity of the industry, because if you imagine... Um, 
I don't want to say developer, I don't want to put all the blame on a developer's shoulders, but you imagine somebody who has the ability to publish an update to your mobile app, just changing the color, the, the main color scheme of the app. Everyone, the second that goes live, will be like, what the fuck has happened to our app? <laughs> turn, turn that back now, you know. Whereas in conversation design, in conversational AI rather, not design, conversational AI practice as, as it stands, you can make changes to the conversation. You can push updates to the NLU. You can change the way the dialogue's structured. If it's in a voice channel, you can change the way something's pronounced or said, change the dialogue. And no one will even know because unless you get to that part in the conversation, you will never even realize. And so it's almost like it seems to be a little bit maybe, I don't know if you would agree, but almost a little bit undervalued as to what's actually occurring. You're dealing with conversations with customers on a one-to-one basis, which doesn't happen very often. And so most of these things are handling, if it's successful with a big company, thousands of conversations. So there seems to be a little bit of a QA um, oversight, doesn't there, in the industry? Totally. I mean, we, we, you know, being a conversation design tool uh, and platform, like we feel the pain of our customers, which is um, conversation design is often, uh, uh, you know, seen as uh, it's almost overlooked. Right. Uh, And they don't have as much of a seat at the table as they'd like. And here's a really good example of that from the tooling perspective. Right. So it's very common for, you know, we've, We've raised like 25 million plus dollars at this point, a team of 50 people just doing one thing, right? Just trying to do the absolute best conversation, sort of like collaborative conversation design and prototyping platform. That's all we do, right? And we're spending so much time and effort on this. Um, And then, you know, you have uh, some companies where they go, oh, hey, you know, VoiceFlow is just like a drag and drop GUI, you know, with some boxes and some nodes and, you know, know, slap it on and uh, boom, it's a conversation design tool. And it's like, you know, there, there's so many nuances, right? Like, how do you do repair pathing? How do you break up, like, you know, the information architecture so you can have, you know, assistance at scale, right? So you can have domain, you know, the domain level, the topic level, you know, so basically the assistant level, then going into subcomponents and subflows. Like, like a lot of these things um, you only get when you're uh, actually, like, really deep in the weeds on conversation design, right? So a good example of this is we've actually spent a lot of time investing in, um, A, just like, you know, the smoothness of our canvas, real-time collaboration, commenting, um, features where uh, it's not just like a static GUI flowcharting tool. Like it probably takes you like a couple of weeks to build like a, you know, drag and drop like box building platform where you just drag the lines, but it's taken us like four years to do everything else. Cause I, and I think it shows where um, conversation design, because it's not a visual thing. And this goes the same for the tools as well is, is like misunderstood uh, essentially by the industry is like, it's simple, right? Like I can speak, I know how to talk to people. Therefore I can write conversations. Therefore, you know, why is this conversation designer continuing to, uh, you know, uh, try and, and sort of drive the process here. And so we still, we see it from the tooling perspective, right? Uh, voice flow is simple to build and we can tell you it's, it's not, there's a lot of uh, functionality in there. That's, um, very nuanced and specific to conversation design and collaboration in particular. Uh, but we totally get it. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, we're trying to do our best, um, as a tool. And I, I see there's, uh, uh, there's a question on how, you know, we plan to, um, help the industry. I think a big thing is we're trying to give, uh, conversation designers a, um, uh, sort of a seat at the table by giving them the tooling set that they can, uh, sort of, you know, use proudly and showcase their work in a way that, um, feels like, you know, the developer has their IDE, visual designers have their Figma, their Sketch, their Photoshop, and conversation designers have VoiceFlow, where um, they can showcase their work in a very professional, easy-to-read uh, uh, way that also shows the complexity, but is also uh, 
uh, uh, friendly and easy easy to read as well. So um, that's what we're that's what we're trying. But I totally get why conversation design is often overlooked because I get it. We can all we can all talk hopefully, um, but uh, not everyone can design a great assistant. Mm, definitely, it's a bit like um, <clears throat> it's a bit like audio in general, which is that you know in. Uh, video editing and video production and filming actually often is that audio is the afterthought. It's the, um, was it the five A's that kind of like uh, audio engineers talk about audio as an afterthought or maybe the four A's. Um, it's kind of a bit like that. And I suppose the challenge here, I mean, designers, UX designers in general have already been through this, which is that what's the value of UX design? What's the value of visual design, graphic design? And, you know, everyone who's designed a website before, if you've done it for either a client or a manager who's been asked you to do it, you'll know that everyone has an opinion on it. Everyone has an opinion on what color that button should be. Everyone has an opinion on what the button text should say. Everyone has an opinion on how, on everything. But I, th- I think that UX designers got good at getting customer feedback and being able to have a conversation with the business about how the conversation about the design shouldn't be opinion-based. It should be user-led and what, what works, works, and let's not have pity arguments between ourselves. The challenge with conversation design is because, as you said, everyone can speak, more or less, you know, uh, certain conditions excluded but you know most humans can have a conversation and you don't have to think about that conversation you don't have to think about managing context and storing slots in your memory and recalling whether you know you're in New York today or, or not and and it's just a natural thing that happens and occurs and so when you try and explain to somebody who ultimately really probably doesn't care that much in the first instances if you're getting started chatbot or voice assistant it's working it's doing its job you're asking for more budget you want to scale the team you want to scale your tooling and the person who you're asking that question of fundamentally doesn't really properly care because they've got lots and lots of other things happening so how have you observed those kind of conversations going like how does a product owner or a senior conversation designer or even just a conversation designer in a small team who's trying to prove the value of this stuff to somebody who can quite comfortably have conversations um how do you how or how have you observed those kind of stakeholder management conversations going to raise the profile of the importance of conversation design? Yeah, I think um, at the end of the day, the conversation designer is, is almost the advocate of the customer, right? Uh, they're, they're the designer of the experience. And so um, it's very common for um, technical requirements to lead uh, the assistant, right? So for example, you know, the platform that we use can do this, it can do this, it can do this, you know, maybe the tech demo did this and here's, you know, here's what we're going to go ahead, ahead and build. Um, and I think, you know, the conversation designer's job is to look at what is possible and then ask what is best for the user and sort of combine those two answers together. Um, and so I think in, you know, really small teams, um, the conversation designer is ultimately, you know, the, the product owner, they're the NLU designer, uh, you know, they're looking at all the raw transcript data, they're clustering utterances, like, you know, in the smallest of teams, they're, they're like a full stack conversation designer, right? They're kind of doing everything. Uh, and then you get, get into larger and larger teams. The ROI is, is pretty simple, right? Like, um, if you're doing a, you know, a million calls a month or, you know, so some, some crazy number and you can deflect, you know, even a, an additional, uh, you know, percent, uh, or you can, sorry, not deflect, you can contain, the, you know, an additional percent, 2%, 3%, just through having better copy. Right. Um, that's when, um, uh, you're going to start to see those results. And we actually think there's a big lack of me- So good product development should have uh, measurement and refinement loops. Right. So you should have your your uh, basically the way we think about assistance at voice. Well, there's three components. 
You've got your interface, which is going to be like what the end user is interacting with, a chat widget, uh, you know, your, your telephony, your assistant, like whatever it might be. You've got your interface layer, you've got your dialogue manager, and you've got your NLU. And those are like, you know, if you really break it down to the most simple um, components, that's, that's kind of the three different stages. And on the two different, um, on the NLU manager and, uh, sorry, on the NLU and the uh, dialogue manager, there should be a refinement loop, which is your design process. Right. And then there also needs to be a measurement loop, which is going to be, um, you know, your analytics, essentially. Right. And ideally, these two loops should be going in tandem um, continually. So you're constantly refining the NLU based off of, you know, what uh, utterances were mischaracterized. Right. Um, how can we go ahead and, uh, and actually improve this model? Um, what intents are missing? Right. So an utterance comes in that we haven't even, you know, we haven't even determined, determined fits an existing intent. Then that's going to lead over into your dialogue manager. Okay, where are users dropping off right now, right? Uh, where, uh, you know, for example, um, where are do we have really low NPS on the conversation or like the resolution rate's really low? And so by pairing a measurement with a design and you have these two refinement loops, that's how you're going to create like the best conversational assistance. And I think when the conversation design team is small, they kind of do everything. And they try to do a little bit of everything, right? And then as teams get bigger and bigger, and this is where we were chatting about the proliferation of these more segmented roles, you're going to start to see specific roles start to work on each level, you know, whether it's, uh, for example, a data scientist who's doing the refinement, and you might have like an AI trainer who's doing the measurement, right, on your NLU side. Then you're going to have a conversation designer who's doing the refinement, and you might have, uh, you know, a conversation designer who's doing the measurement as well, or you might also have a data scientist there. And you've got each of the these roles that's trying to iterate as fast as possible, um, which is ultimately going to create the best user experience. So um, as teams get larger, scope gets smaller, you know, pretty typical stuff. And then certainly um, at, at the lowest stages, it's just advocating um, on behalf of the user and, and why conversational AI can be so impactful since they are kind of doing the full thing anyways. Mm. So, Bit, bit of a politician's answer there, uh, only because it's a hard it's a hard question to answer. Um, but I want to talk about the workflow since we've been thinking a ton about this, uh, you know, kind of over the past like year and a bit. Mm, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, you mentioned full stack conversation designer, and, and you've alluded to some other roles, <clears throat> and that was. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of Richard's questions from earlier on, and apologies for not getting it to, to it sooner, but it was around the emergence of of these roles that didn't really exist last time we spoke. You know, conversation designer, as you mentioned, it was like VUI design, voice user interface design, um, a bunch of different chatbot design. Um, now, conversation design seems to have settled into its own thing. Some people call it conversational experience design, but I think conversation design in general has kind of solidified itself as its own sort of term. Um, but the way the way we've been talking about kind of like less mature teams, um, and there is this notion of full stack conversation design, which has come about, but that's, that's a role that you tend to see in larger companies. However, ironically, it's more likely to, to be a role actually that you probably find in a smaller team where everyone's doing a bit of everything. So I wonder if you can define what you what you're talking about when you say full stack conversation designer and then secondly um I, I suppose we probably answered some of those other roles but any other roles that we haven't covered yet that you're noticing emerge basically i think full stack conversation designer means your um your work is present along the entire workflow all the way from um intent uh from you know uh, from basically defining the intents right so at the very beginning, like, let's say, for example, you don't even have an assistant yet, right? You're at the very early stages, you know, um, looking at, uh, okay, 10,000 user transcripts, uh, you know, conversations, what are people asking about, right? So just, just defining those intents, which are sort of, you know, the business objectives here too. Um, and then moving those into um, the conversations that now we're designing 
um, our multi-turn flows. And we're also going to define like what's more of a knowledge base type uh, question, right? Since there's basically single turn and multi-turn dialogues are what makes up our dialogue manager. And then from there, you know, uh, understanding how to package all of this up together and being able to um, uh, uh, pass this off to uh, whoever is going to work on the interface layer. So it might be our you know developers on a custom chat widget, or passing this off to a platform you know in a particular format, whatever it might be. So I think that would be a full stack conversation designer is when they go all the way from like you know the beginning uh, to the end of that workflow, right? That that's you know your your classic full stack. And then yeah, you certainly are going to get more and more segmented to the point where you have just copywriters working on content because you know um, as your assistant gets larger and it covers more. Um, uh, uh, more regions. You're going to have a lot of localization uh, to do. You're going to start to have. Um, you're going to start to add in conditional responses. You know, uh, you know, welcome back versus you know, nice to meet you. Small things like that. You know, based off user sessions. Um, that's almost within that like content management side, and that's a whole bucket that I think a lot of companies aren't even. Um, uh, a lot of companies aren't even there yet, right? They're just still trying to figure out like how do we create a workflow that just iterates on the core dialogue manager without even like, you know, which is like the context model essentially without even iterating on the content itself. Right. Um, and so I think eventually you'll start to see that emerge. I think you'll start to see persona design emerge. Um, I think we're a little early and it's, you know, it's interesting. Like there was some chatter on LinkedIn, I don't know, maybe like a month ago on like persona management. And um, this is something we chat about internally. And, you know, even I think probably on some podcasts and stuff like years ago, but I think um, when I think about, uh, how the industry is is evolving, um, everyone needs to have an assistant in order for like the bar to be raised a little bit, right? So right now, because at the end of the day, it doesn't make sense to, um, unless there's like huge cost uh, cost benefits, which, you know, there are on, you know, the uh, NPS side, but for the most part, like websites, what matters about your website is how it fares relative to other websites. Of course, it's good to have a good website. That's always going to be a good thing. Um, but like, if you have like a 1980s website versus like a 2020 website, like, your website might have been good for 1980, but it's, a you know, what good is, is uh, defined relative to what's in market, right? And so I think uh, today, persona design and content design is um, uh, uh, often focused on less as people are so worried about getting just like the dialogue manager and the NLU to a good spot before they're refining like, you know, our, you know, our brand, uh, you know, and, and, and the actual content. People do a little bit of it, but it's certainly not to the point where they have an entire role for it in the tool set yet. But I do think, you know, I don't know, maybe two years, who knows, right? Like any predictions, you know, right with a long enough time frame. Um, <laughs> uh, I think you'll start to see, you know, pers- persona, management systems and persona design systems uh, emerge and that might become a larger and larger part of that like full stack conversation designer workflow um but i i don't i don't think we're quite there yet um hmm. but that would, i mean you know i i think especially with the federated model that a lot of teams are making um it would be really hard for each of them ha- to have a consistent persona so i think you would need to have some sort of tooling set that has like here's our brand vocabulary and i you know i saw richard asked about NL, uh, um, nlg models right i wouldn't be surprised if the conversation designer role switches more and more over the next like five years into um, almost like objective design and um and persona design right and then a lot of like the actual responses i could see becoming uh NL, and a um, nlg driven uh so basically mm-hmm. like you know uh, generated for for those who might not be familiar with the term um but generated through the filter of like a persona system that's been outlined by the brand so it tightly controls you know what the model can actually say you know the words it uses the tonality things like that um and uh yeah so anyways bit of a tangent there 
more of a future facing role. Um, mm. But, you know, I think, I think we've certainly covered the, the, the predominant roles that you see in most teams today. I mean, with a whole yeah. slew of titles, though, people have titles for everything. Uh, conversation designer is just now starting to get consolidated, but you see, like, you see, like, a, you know, ten variations for every, you know, sort of one cluster of job. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, in terms of like that <clears throat> that future future outlook. I mean, I, I give a talk. I think it was one of the Google events, um, the online live streams they used to do. I think they still do actually, but it was about the future of conversation design. And it was right at a time when we were talking to a lot of companies like uh, Zero Shot Bot and Vlooper and all of these companies that have this intentless NLU structure and not necessarily large language models as such, but they're you know, built on transformer models and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so at the time, I was really thinking deeply about this kind of technology and the ability for things like, you know, Google's recent Lambda 2 and, and OpenAI's GPT-3 and this kind of stuff to really have a, a big kind of effect on on the role of a conversation designer. And so the conclusion I had was that in areas where it's more Q&A, over time, and who, again, every prediction is right with the right time frame, but over time, it may be that some of these larger language models take on some of that content Q&A, quick response kind of answers. Um, and maybe even actually more transactional stuff where it's just de defined entities that you need to extract in order to process something. And the conversation designer role becomes about figuring out what it is you should be doing in the first place, measuring what that looks like. And then also, certainly in the, in the medium term, who knows a company that's got a, a knowledge base that's good enough to throw into a large language model and have that just spit out content that spawn? It just doesn't exist because all of the, the, the language that's used and everything is just an absolute mess. That where it's stored, how it's accessed, you know, how it's written, you know, marked up for SSML and all that kind of stuff. There's so many avenues where I think that we're, we're just so far away from having this entity large language model manage everything for us that I think there's there's def, there's work for conversation designers for a hell of a long time. And the role will change, as you've said, it's already changed in the last two years and it will continue to change. And I suppose VoiceFlow's job is to to either lead those changes or at least to keep track of those changes and, and to change what you do or iterate your tooling accordingly. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the way I view this is um, as the tooling gets better, uh, a conversation designer should have to do less work to get the same result. But th what that ultimately is going to mean is that the assistants will get larger in scale, right? Which I, I think makes sense, right? Like a lot of assistants are very simple today. Uh, and so if a conversation designer can design twice as much, uh, you know, in the same time frame, I don't think it's that we'll have half as many conversation designers. I think instead it's going to be that the assistants will become twice as good. Um, mm. And then with that, as the assistants get better, more brands are going to be pushed into the space, which is ultimately going to lead to more conversation designers. And so um, it's a bit of a, um, uh, a funny way to view the world. And I certainly see like, hey, you know, with NLG emerging, you know, conversation designers are going to matter less. And I actually think it's going to it's going to uh, make the assistants better, which will then lead to more conversation designers. <laughs> um, and so a bit counterintuitive, but uh, if we view, you know, if we imagine the world is going to have, you know, uh, if we view the role of websites and mobile apps are going to decrease over the next decade and personal assistants are going to become one of the primary interfaces and in how we actually talk to, uh, talk to companies and, and get things done, then I think, you know, it's pretty obvious to me that the person who designs these assistants are going to grow in importance and, 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 you know, and prominence. And so, um, we're very, we're very early like endings though. Right. Uh, and you know, we've been saying that forever, but 
you know, when you look at how like long it took the internet to even take off, right. You know, mm. um, it was growing quickly, uh, but it took a long time. And, you know, a lot of these assistants just really launched, you know, in the early 2010s. And so we're, you know, we're coming up on 10 years into this, this market, but you know, it's probably going to be another 10 years until, you know, I can tell my personal assistant, like my Siri or my Alexa or my whatever to like, Hey, go do this complex task and intermediate it between several, several brand assistants. Um, mm. But I, I think, university that's the future you know we're all kind of working towards and it's a it's a pretty exciting one um i see mike michael's got a, a quick question in the chat i'm just gonna answer that real quick does your platform integrate work with uh, other conversational ai platforms yes uh that is uh the whole goal of voice flow is um you know uh trying to create the best uh collaborative conversation design uh platform that then integrates with all the other major um you know nlu platforms uh so like dialogue flow we have direct integrations with watson and you know c- kind of the whole you know the list goes down so um yeah short answer is yes cool what about what about other platforms that are um almost becoming like orchestration layers like one reach and, and those where they have a canvas google dialogue flow cx i suppose could be considered in a similar kind of fashion they have a visual canvas which at first glance, one could compare to VoiceFlow. Uh, obviously, the features are different. You've got a lot more collaboration tools, as we mentioned, a lot more ability to mark up the document to say what should be happening at which turn and all that kind of stuff. But uh, from from a from a um, uh, unskilled eye, they might look the same. And so, how do you view those kind of platforms? And do you think that VoiceFlow also complements those current low code platforms? Totally. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, both Google and Amazon are, are investors and they have their own platforms that, that do this stuff. Right. And like we, um, we view it as our job is to, um, be basically be the three things I kind of highlighted at the very beginning. It's kind of nice to, 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 to cap with it, but you know, the most uh, collaborative platform. So, uh, viewing conversational AI, uh, as, as, uh, a thing that requires a team, right. Um, you can't just have developers, you can't just have design, designers, and you can't have them working in silos. So be the most collaborative platform. So we built everything from the ground up to be collaborative. You know, I, I think we're, um, uh, I, I don't say the only one since I haven't used, you know, there's like a billion bot building platforms, but uh, uh, one of the few that has, you know, real-time collaboration supported in, in a really good way, right? Like being able to have tons of people on the canvas working at the same time, designing, you know, leaving comments, you know, versioning, et cetera. So collaboration is, is, is one. Design-led is really important because I think a lot of platforms, um, and uh, I'm not going to name like specific, but specifically, but they view it as like, oh, you know, customer, you know, wants to make it a bit easier to consume our dialogue manager. So we're going to like slap a GUI on it. Right. Um, and so it's, it's not their business. In fact, like voice flows, if you actually think we're a business model, we sell licenses. And so our incentive is to make that design and collaboration layer the absolute best it can possibly be uh, because we don't care about your underlying runtime stack. Right. Other companies, though, if you, if you flip their business model, they actually make money from the hosting, and so the GUI is an afterthought. The GUI is we're going to give it to you in, in, in the minimum viable way so that you actually consume uh, the, the runtime services, right? Um, and so it's completely flipped business model and incentive. Uh, and so that's like, you know, one way we, we think about it. Um, mm. uh, and so anyways, design led is, is sort of that. that. Um, uh, and then a tech agnostic is the big one, right? Like a lot of platforms because they make their money um, from hosting, um, it's going to be a completely different business model, uh, which means uh, they actually are trying to incentivize vendor lock-in because they are the vendor, right? That you're getting locked mm-hmm. into. And so um, we view it as, 
um, the only certainty in this industry is that everything is going to continue to change. And so how do we ensure that our customers have uh, as much flexibility as they need to be able to build the best possible customer experiences? And we think that just comes from being flexible and not locking you in and, you know, giving you a single source of truth for your data, which will then allow you to experiment with other technology stacks as well. So, um, yeah, I think I think that's just how we've we've positioned it. It's it's pretty unique in that sense, to be honest. And uh, I think it, you know that positioning has come from um, chatting with customers about what the ideal is and just trying to work towards that. You know, kind of day by day. So, um, yeah, it's to the untrained eye. Uh, I think a lot of platforms look the same, and then I think there's a reason that uh, you know, given how many platforms there are, you know, we've continued to grow at a pretty fast pace. And you know, uh, I certainly see some customers in the chat who you know we've been working with for a long time now and are still with us. And so I think uh, uh, it's certainly working from that perspective. Um, but, mm. uh, you know, we have a long way to go as well. Definitely. Well, <clears throat> the real-time collaboration is absolutely phenomenal. It's like it's like Google Docs, basically, isn't it? It's like nothing I've seen before on any other platform, um, which is amazing. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, about, we're about to launch uh, our V2 version of it, like, you know, sometime in, basically sometime in the next, like, couple of weeks. And it took us over a year to build. Uh, and this is, like... This is when I say like it, it takes a couple of weeks to throw together a GUI and then it takes like a year or two to build like the entire, you know, foundation for your platform to be collaborative. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's certainly um, the incentive models of the tools that you guys, uh, so you guys, but like the industry uses matters a lot, right? Our, our mm. entire incentive model is based off of like building the absolute best thing that does not care what your underlying technology is because we just care about like the collaboration layer. So, mm. um yeah, it's an interesting way to view the space. Yeah, it's really good as well because a lot of the a lot of the uh, tooling providers, I think, think about conversational AI, and this is also evident, which you haven't actually spoke about, in a lot of the companies that you see now offering conversational AI services, and uh, without necessarily a background or experience in it, but but seeing it more like an opportunity, is that they view conversational AI as a simple act of categorizing an utterance and providing a response to it. And that's kind of what it's viewed as. And so categorizing an utterance is a technical problem because you need to have your NLU trained sufficiently to categorize it. And then providing a response is a utility issue. It's not a design problem. It's actually just give them a response. And so I think that's responsible for the lack of designing and and, and the poor experiences that we see today, uh, certainly in the early days of doing this stuff, is because if you view it simply as a, as a act of categorizing responses and uh, utterances and providing responses, you're not going to really put an experiential layer into it. You're not going to really understand the user journey and the flow of that journey. You're not going to understand what matters to the customer when you've answered that question, like what's next you're not going to start thinking about proactively engaging so if the customer starts a conversation and you know their their you know location or time of day or their booking number you can be proactive and suggesting what might be the best situation so all of this stuff comes when you think about the experience if you just think about categorizing an utterance and providing a response you will build tools like you've just suggested which is a GUI for the sake of a GUI because that's what the market needs rather than a GUI because a GUI is a way of collaborating with a team to build the best experiences. Most conversational experiences are button driven, right? Like, mm-hmm. like, yeah. like, like if you, if you look at chatbots on, on websites, you know, like web chat is, you know, from like a, what conversation designers work on, it's probably like 40% IVRs, maybe even like 30 to 35. And then the, re, you know, the remaining, you know, 
most of that is going to be web chat. And then you have like some frontier categories, right? Like drive-throughs, in-car, uh, et cetera. But a lot of them are just in that web chat and that IVR space. And of those web chat, um, so many of them are just button driven, right? And I think that the reason for that is, um, I mean, A, you don't have to have an NLU model or if, you know, maybe you still do in there. Um, but for the most part, it's just easy, right? Put you, you kind of put the user on rails. Um, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, we, you know, we, we fully like endorse, we have button steps and voice load, the ability to design for these button driven conversations. Um, but we're certainly not, I think there's a lot of marketing in, in, in this space on like this, like breakthrough, you know, model for conversational ad. There's this new technology that's going to change everything. And then you look at it and it's like a button driven FAQ bot. Um, but you know, but it's, 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 it's um, the space trying to figure out uh, um, the best way to, to do a lot of this stuff. And there's, you know, new approaches being taken. There's new approaches to conversation design, which is interesting. Like, you know, we, uh, when we first set out to build voice flow, uh, and for those who don't know the story, basically four years ago, we were building our own, uh, conversational experiences, we found the tooling was either like super heavy, like sort of one size fits all, uh, which is, you know, what we talked about, or it's like, you know, really makeshift tooling, right? So like Excel sheets and flowcharts and things. And so we built VoiceFlow to sort of be in that middle that allows you to um, have the flexibility of like an enterprise platform, but then also be able to mix and match your tech and, you know, just focus on the collaboration side. So, um, uh, I completely lost my train of thought there. Um, <laughs> we were talking about, um, I've lost my train of thought as well now. We, we, we were talking about, uh, what were we talking about? I've lost my train of thought as well. We were on a roll there as well. I, I know. It was, it was, we were, we were going, oh, sorry, uh, button-driven button driven chatbots. We were talking about, uh, button, so, so most chatbots are button-driven and it's something that you also endorse in certain situations. It's part of the platform. And then you went into the story of where voice flow came from in order to arrive, presumably, at a conclusion of how that came to be. Yeah, no, and, and I was I was just it was a, a bit of a uh, uh, talking about how there are new uh, forms of conversation design. And so, anyways, we we there are basically three ways to design a conversation design tool. Uh, there's state based, which in, in which you design basically the outcome, and then you work backwards. Uh, there's flow based, which is really focused on like um, mapping in the context, and you've script based. And so these are three different ways to visualize a conversation. I'm sure there are other like visualizations, but they'll generally fall into these like three categories, like broadly speaking. Um, and so we actually tried building these three tools. And what's interesting is state-based, the best, the, the there's a pro and there's a conduit. So with state-based, um, the pro is that it, it puts the designer thinking about outcomes, which is um, sometimes when you're flow-based, you're designing like for what's next, but you're not thinking about where you're going. You're just thinking about what's next, right? And so you end up creating like really convoluted conversations that um, like might take way more turns than they have to, right? Because you're just thinking about chaining together flows, right? So the nice thing about designing from an outcome and then working backwards. So basically saying, okay, I want the user to be able to order a pizza. What do I need in order to do that? I need entity A, B, C. Uh, okay, like how am I going to handle if they only give me A, B, C? You know, you kind of go that way. Um, the only problem with that is um, it's really hard to read. Uh, and so we actually tried to visualize this and like visualization is a huge part of conversation design tooling because you need to actually be able to communicate this conversation design to other stakeholders. Like if it's just in your head, you could just use word docs. Right. But um, for the most part, it's like, you can't remember everything yourself. And so you need to uh, have some sort of visualization tool. 
And so that's the big problem with state-based. And then the other thing too is it, it's really tough to get started with state-based because in order for you to have a fluent conversation, you need to have thought of every single possible edge case just to like test it for the first time, if that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Versus with a flow chart, you can just go through the happy path and then layer on your error pathing and your repair pathing and things like that. Um, but with state-based, it's got to be fully flushed out and then you'll test it for the first time two weeks after you start it, right? And then you might find, you know, find out it's the wrong flow. And then you go to the very you know, opposite end of the spectrum and you've got like a script-based approach approach to tooling. And this is where you just do the happy path. And then from there, um, it's the fastest way to quickly understand like what's like the vibe of the conversation. What's the gist of it. It's almost like the, the, um, the equivalent of a wireframe in conversational interfaces, uh, you know, coming from UI design would be a script based approach. Right. And then, you know, you'll sort of layer on your additional scripts. Only problem there is it doesn't handle branching well. Right. And mm-hmm. branching is where conversations like, get, you know, the second that you have to handle complexity, like the script based approach breaks down. And so, um, different ways to visualize conversations, but I think ultimately flow is flow based. Um, oh, by the way, the pros and con- the pro is that it's the easiest to visualize. The con is that it's uh, hard to visualize depth. Uh, and again, mm-hmm. and, and it gets really messy quickly because you can still seal the branching, but unless you have a good way to segment the data, um, it gets really messy, hard to read. Uh, and then it doesn't allow for that depth because of it, right? Like for example, imagine if your flowchart had actually every single like response variation, every single sample utterance, like you have to, you have to be really intelligent how you actually break it up. But mm-hmm. um, anyways, a bit of a bit of a tangent on just giving sort of the audience like an understanding of when you think about how to visualize a conversation, really sort of, it's going to be one of those three different approaches. And then you might mix and match depending on how you design the product um, along that route. But for the most part, you know, we, we, we prefer flow based uh, and then try to um, uh, uh, build, uh, build on, uh, 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 remove some of the weaknesses of flow based, but through really good segmentation, through really good uh, being able to handle scale and things like that. Um, mm. But anyways, that, yeah. yeah, yeah, and breaking it down into because one of the other things you have is separate flows, isn't it? So rather than have because I've made that mistake in, in years gone by where I'd started something and it just balloons up, you know, the design just balloons into something that's just absolutely huge. So having the yeah. flows are decent because you can consolidate into different compartments, so it makes it all easier and more digestible. But I suppose one of the are we good for time, by the way? I know we've overrun slightly. I, I'm I'm good on my side, so I, and I, I see people are still commenting stuff, which is good. Yeah, there's, there's a couple it's a of good questions. Sign that it's, not, it's not just you and I just riffing back. And forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a couple of questions that I did want to get to, but I kind of wanted to uh, to to kind of just comment on this kind of like floor based uh, approach, which is that um, you know over time, if work, if you're working on something particularly complex it can get quite complicated quite quickly, as we've mentioned. And, you know, having the, the ability to put something inside a separate floor helps because you can consolidate what you're doing as you're doing it. It's okay, well, this is like a sub-conversation about a particular thing. So let's put that into a floor and we can come back into this conversation after and stuff, which makes yeah. it really helpful. <clears throat> it, but floors can still get quite complex, can't they? Because you might have, for example, I worked on something in the past for a bank and it was a retirement thing. And it was like it, the, the whole beginning of the conversation was collecting a bunch of data really Mm -hmm. and it was about 12 to 20 questions or so gathering information and depending on the combination of all of those bits of information that was gathered you would be sent into a separate floor at the back end and sometimes you might go into one floor but because you answered something to to another question you might be put into another floor afterwards and so you could go through and have what was essentially six or seven different conversations yeah. as part of this one thing and it, and it it got really kind of difficult to to manage from a from a kind of like 
visual point of view because you could also come back over, you go forward again. The value in that question might change and you might go back over again. You need to remember what floor you've come from, what floor you're going to. And so I'm wondering if you if your thoughts have uh, advanced in terms of as teams start to mature, they're not just working on simple question answers. They're developing yeah. assistants that have got hundreds of intents and more complex conversations that can go backwards and forwards and, and all this kind of, kind, of, kind of stuff. So I'm wondering whether you can explain your kind of philosophy on how to document and handle those more complex use cases where you've got a lot of stuff going on, a lot of con- context being gathered, and how is best to represent that? Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm in like a, one of my like product meetings right now. Um, <laughs> so we, um, I think in, in conversation design, um, often there's this like desire to match in conversation design, what already exists in, in, in visual design. Right. And so a good example of this is components. And so when it comes to reusable components in, um, visual design, uh, there's really only one kind of data and it's going to be pixels. And often like your button, for example, like let's say you create like a button symbol, right? Um, And it's like a welcome button or something. That button's often not going to change uh, user to user. But in conversation design, like the name of the user, like whether they're a return user, like that stuff will change. And so the, like the components are contextual, uh, which is what makes components really tough. Um, And it's like you, we almost think of it as you need to break down components into like the most atomic form, basically the things that are actually universal. And then you build templates using these atomic components. And so what I mean by that is like, for example, um, uh, when it comes to entity collection, that might be the same per user, right? So like how you actually go about that, like entity, entity collection flow. So like your entities, that's going to be an atomic component, right? So you might actually build a component that tries to get basically these three different things. It might be like an intent, for example, um, and that's going to become an atomic component. And then you might pair that with a, res- uh, you know, like a welcome response that's right before that. And that welcome response is going to, um, you know, be an atomic component as well. Because the two of these paired together, you might have a different name and you might have a different, uh, 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 you know, entity collection flow. Um, but like at the atomic level, um, the response is always going to be the same and the entity collection is always going to be the same. And then you compare these together to create templates. So basically different, there's different data types. Um, we always think about it as, um, I'm going to forget this because like we, we, like we've got all these the documentation internally based on this stuff, but it's like uh, NLU data, um, the actual variables, the responses and the context, basically the flow, right? Like how that actually works. Like those are your four types of atomic data. And you can basically, these are the things where you can create components out of, and then everything else is actually a template, right? Like you might pull it in, but it's not gonna have like some master component that does the entire system. I mean, maybe it does. And we actually have that system in VoiceFlow called flows. But for the most part, it's like you drag in a template and then you're gonna now contextualize it for whatever that current scenario is. But at least you have, like a lot of it already built out. And now you're just like, you know, adding in the small little contextual tweaks. Um, Because I think it's a dream of everyone to have like every single component be completely reusable in every single way. But it just like, it's, it's, um, it's in uh, it's, it's not very feasible uh, for the most part, just if you want to have a really contextual experience. So you can, you can contextualize the components at the atomic level, just not at like the full assistant level itself. Mm. Um, bit of a rant there but like that's how we've mm. been thinking about this uh, a lot internally because you know we have a flow system which allows you to create these like you know 
reusable like linked templates. Then we also uh, uh, have a system that allows you to basically create components that are unlinked, right? So for example, one that, you know, propagates changes to all the other child components, one that is uh, completely delinked the second you drag it out. You kind of need to have both in the same way you have that in visual design as well. Um, you need to do that, but then you need to break it into the subcomponents. Anyways, that went super into the weeds. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Hopefully that was helpful though. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Uh, while, while we're in the weeds, we've got a question from Mohammed, which we'll get to, and then one final question from Richard, and then... Uh, and then we'll we'll let you get to your meetings in New York. Uh, Mohammed, I don't know if it's going to all display. Oh, it is going to display cool. So uh, <clears throat> how does voice flow work for categorizing utterances with multi-intents and long-sentence utterances that have low confidence? Is there conditional-based roots based on sentiments? Yeah. Yeah, you you you, uh, you, you answered it with the last the last uh, part of your, uh, your your prompt there. Yeah, we, we basically have the, the ability to do conditionals based off of... Uh, of, of um, uh, confidence. Uh, so if you've got like a high confidence, maybe you don't do like a confirmation prompt, uh, you know, because you're like, you know, 90% confident, just move on. You know, if it was low confidence and, you know, maybe you want to like disambiguate or something, you can, you can put them down a conditional route. Um, so yeah, good, good question there. Cool. 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 And then this is one that Richard asked a, a little while ago, but I think it's, it's kind of related to the conversation that we were having around teams and so like that, but I think it's still relevant, which is for those teams looking to mature and develop, what design roles or activities do you think are most undervalued or overlooked as teams begin to grow and scale? I think copywriting is almost universally overlooked. Um, I think it'll, it, especially at the smaller stages though, because again, it's, it's one of those things where like everyone can write, right? Um, but you know, the difference between like a good prompt and a bad prompt can be pretty huge. And like, when you really think about it, when you, like, if you read like, you know, Kathy Pearl's book on like VUI design, very little of that's on context or very little of that's on like the NLU design. Most of it's actually just on the prompts, right? Like, mm. how, the, like the, the science of asking a good question and um, directing the conversation in a way that's very goal oriented, but friendly um, is like, like that's copywriting, right? And so um, I think it's often overlooked. Uh, you know, the best example is going to be, you know, the, the cardinal sin, which is like, you know, asking a question like, hey, you know, are you going to pay with visa or credit? And then giving them like a response after like, you know, because we can handle both, right? And then so yeah. now it's like they're going to barge in or something, right? So um, <laughs> like small things like that, like just might get overlooked, um, especially if the if the conversation designer comes from a UX background, Um they might not focus as much on copy as someone who comes from a copy background. And so, uh, by the way, and we, we like, we, we find this all the time. Like if you, we might spend like a month and you know, tons of like engineering hours building a feature. And if it, if it is mislabeled or the tool tip is poorly like written, like that feature might have way, like that feature that we spend months building might have like half the utilization as like, if we change the word to be slightly better copy, it's like, it's like the crazy little, little changes like that. Um, and I think, you know, as technologists, we often all focus so much on, on the technology. Um, but at the end of the day, like great products are half what they are and half what they you, you say they are. <laughs> so um, yeah, definitely copies undervalued across, across the board. That's wicked. That's a good example of that prompt as well, because uh, especially in a vo with a voice interface, it could be really challenging. If you ask a question like that, do you want to pay with uh, MasterCard or Visa? The response you ask, basically you're asking for an option, but the response you'll get is a yes or a no. 
You know what I mean? So it's, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely copywriting is definitely important. Uh, Wicked, well, Bryn, this has been absolutely, uh, absolute pleasure. Uh, definitely, definitely enjoyed it. One more uh, visit on the podcast and you get yourself, uh, I haven't got one with me, but a VUX World Cap for the hat trick. So, uh, yeah, we'll have to do version three at some point. Oh, boy. Yeah, I mean, uh, was this two, year, two years from now? <laughs> It'd be crazy to see how, how much the industry has changed, but hopefully, uh, hopefully everything for the better. And I mean, I mean, uh, you know, from what I've seen, everything's trending in the right direction. It's been great to see a lot of the you know same friendly faces over the past couple of years. You know, find new homes, uh, transition into new careers, continue to build on their existing career. It's been uh, uh, been exciting. So yeah, appreciate you having me on, and you know, looking forward to doing this again in. Uh, I'm like 2024. God. It's crazy to say. Yeah, it's absolutely mad, isn't it? It's uh, it does make you realize how much things do change. I think sometimes you can just get caught up in the weeds. You know, we do this twice a week now, just churning out podcasts, churning out content. You know, and it's kind of like you can just be going from one step to the next. The same thing I imagine with yourself. You know, you're working on the product every day, and you're kind of building out iterations and increments and stuff like that. And you can kind of get lost in the weeds. But when you just kind of like pop up. And you have a look back and we look back over the last two years since we last spoke and it is a completely different landscape and everything's changed for the better without a shadow of a doubt. But as you still, as you said, it still feels whenever I have these conversations, it still feels like we're just getting started. Totally. I mean, that's a great soundbite to end off here. <laughs> nice one. Braden, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you for your questions. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, let's not leave it two years next time. Let's maybe do something a bit sooner than that. But I appreciate your time, Braden. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, everyone.